0: Welcome, everyone. Uh, It's my distinct honor to welcome you to one of the great events uh, that the Kennedy School is so fortunate to host every year, uh, the Goldsmith Awards that is led through the uh, remarkable uh, uh, Shorenstein Center. And I think Doug Shorenstein is here uh, with us. There he is sitting next to my wife. I ought to be able to find him. Uh, But Doug is uh, uh, truly a remarkable supporter and and friend. But most importantly, This is a critical moment, it seems to me, for the future of uh, journalism, for the future of uh, our democracies and the like. And we're here tonight to celebrate the kind of work that is most critical, uh, and frankly very much at risk uh, if we are not very thoughtful and effective in terms of what we do for the future. We're also going to hear from one of the truly remarkable um, journalists of our era. uh, uh, Nick Kristof, who also happens to be on my visiting committee, so he's kind of my boss, and so I'm like really high on him. Uh, and speaking of bosses, my real boss, uh, Drew Faust, President Faust has joined us here along with her husband Charles, so I'm really on best behavior, I'm going to be sitting up straight and admiring everything. Uh, my only job here, other than to talk about how amazing and important this night is, is to, to briefly introduce Alex Jones. He's the director of the Shorenstein Center and the Lawrence M. Lombard Lecture in Press and Public Policy. Uh, he, covered the New York, he covered the press for the New York Times from 1983 to 92. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1987. Uh, His most recent book, Losing the News, The Future of the News that Feeds Democracy, was published in August 2009 and the New York Times' uh, Sunday Book Review called Jones, A Bringer of Light in the Encircling Doom. Um, So I I think that's good. Um, He also, in 91, co-authored, along with Susan Tift, The Patriarch, The Rise and Fall of the Bingham Dynasty. Uh, which Business Week magazine selected as one of the best business books of the year, and on it goes. He's been a Neiman Fellow. He's often uh, appears on the uh, NPRs, on the media, is frequently called upon to comment on a variety of issues, and indeed was recently awarded the DeWitt Carter Reddick Award for the University of Texas for a career achievement and was elected to the American Academy of Sciences. But most importantly to me, he is the director of the Shorenstein Center and it is my great honor now to turn the program over to Alex Jones. I should wanna make one other point about Alex. Alex gives the best introductions of anyone here. I am, because I have to give a certain number of these, I am thrilled he gives only one or two a year because he is a right buster. Thank you.
1: Thank you, all, and welcome. Um, This is, as David said, always a very happy night for the Shorenstein Center. This year marks the 22nd anniversary of the Goldsmith Awards program, and each year we look forward to this night as a high point for the Shorenstein Center, and if I may say so immodestly, for American journalism. There is, of course, a story behind the Goldsmith Awards, Bob Greenfield, then a Philadelphia lawyer, had a client named Berta Marks Goldsmith who had told him of her intent to leave him her entire estate. Bob declined to accept it and went searching for a good way to use the money for a purpose that Berta would have approved. She was passionately interested in good government, followed the news ardently, and was particularly outraged at misconduct by people with a public responsibility. Eventually, Bob connected with Marvin Cow, the Schornstein Center's founding director, who I'm glad to say is with us tonight. And the result was the Goldsmith Awards in political journalism, which include the investigative reporting prize, book prizes, fellowships, and a career award. Shortly before the new year, and after an extraordinary life of achievement, and many, many contributions to the common good. Bob Greenfield died at 97. We mourn him and miss him, and tonight we honor him. I believe that the creation and the support of the Goldsmith Awards was one of Bob's proudest accomplishments, a pride that his family shares. We are joined tonight by several members of the Greenfield family. Mike Greenfield, who serves as a Goldsmith Prize judge, His wife, Elaine Yuang, and their daughter, Karina, who attended her first Goldsmith Prize ceremony last year at five months. Also here are the Greenfield Foundation's chairman, Bill Greenfield and his wife, Joni, the foundation's president, Jill Feldman, her daughter, Rachel and nephew, Daniel, Charles and Barbara Kahn, and Bill Epstein. Without the Greenfield Foundation's continued support and good faith this night, would not be possible. So please join me in showing our appreciation to the Greenfield family and to those associated with the Greenfield Foundation. I would be remiss if I did not also take the opportunity to thank the Shorenstein family for their generosity and support. Walter Shorenstein originally endowed the Shorenstein Center as a memorial to his daughter, Joan, who was a distinguished journalist. His family continues its support of the Shorenstein Center and its engagement with all aspects of the media. His son, Doug, you've already been told, is here tonight sitting by the dean's wife. Please join me in expressing our thanks to the Shorenstein family. Our career award winner this year goes to the indefatigable Nick Kristof of the New York Times, and we should be hearing from him later. But first, the Goldsmith Prizes. The first Goldsmith Awards are the book prizes, uh, and making those presentations will be my colleague Tom Patterson, the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at the Kennedy School.
2: See, I've got all of Alex's notes up here, so I can, uh, don't take them. Alex, thank you. Uh, We award two Goldsmith Book Prizes each year, uh, one for the best trade book in the field of press and politics, the other for the best academic book. Each prize includes a $5,000 cash award. Let me first uh, thank this year's book uh, award judges. Uh, Alex is one of the judges, Matt Baum, Somewhere out there, Marian Just, uh, and I was also a voting member of the committee. I'll start with the Goldsmith Book Prize in the trade category. This year's winner is Consent of the Networked by Rebecca McKinnon. Read it. The book will change how you think about the Internet. We've heard countless stories in recent years about the transformative effects of the Internet, nearly all of them positive, as in the case of the Arab Spring. But as Rebecca shows, the digital revolution is not unfolding in a straight line. Its liberating power is under threat by governments, China for instance, but also by corporations like Google, Facebook, Twitter, which Rebecca likens to sovereigns because of their degree of influence over our daily lives. Everything from knowing what we're looking at to knowing what we're buying. Our privacy, one of the strongest protections we have, against the intrusive power of the state and the corporation is at risk. Governments use the internet to spy on us. Private firms use it to exploit our preferences. As a result, says Rebecca, we need a Lockean type social contract to protect our rights as citizens of a networked world. Therein lies the book's title, Consent of the Networked. One review calls her book a sobering rebuttal of the heady rhetoric of what it means to be free online. Another review says Rebecca demonstrates that the ultimate effect of the digital revolution will depend not on technology itself, but rather on the resolve of citizens to shape the way in which it is used. Full disclosure requires that I say one more thing about this book. The author is a former Shorenstein Center Fellow. Rebecca was with us in the spring of 2004 after having served as CNN bureau chief in Beijing and in Tokyo. For books written by former Shorenstein Center Fellows, the committee raises the bar for the award, from a simple majority vote to a unanimous vote. Rebecca McKinnon, please step forward to receive the Goldsmith Trade Book Award for consent of the government. As I mentioned uh, at the outset, we also award a Goldsmith Prize in the academic book category. This year's winner is Jonathan Ladd's Why Americans Hate the Media and How It Matters. John, who is on the faculty of Georgetown University, is not a former Shorenstein Center fellow. uh, And we don't normally reveal the committee vote in such cases. But I thought he might like to know that, as with Rebecca's book, His was a unanimous choice. One of the most disturbing media trends of the past half century has been a sharp decline in the public's confidence in the news media. The media were once one of the nation's most trusted institutions. They are now one of the least trusted. In most surveys, they're either last or next to last, depending on how we're feeling at the moment about Congress. What explains the precipitous decline? Through surveys, experiments, and other methods, John tests a number of hypotheses. One that panned out was the rise of infotainment. However attractive soft news is to the news audience, it has contributed to the undermining of the media's credibility. Nevertheless, the major factor behind the media's declining reputation has been a relentless effort by partisan elites, mostly from the right, To weaken the media's credibility. Under the guise that the news media are politically biased, partisan elites have waged a decades-long assault on the media and have succeeded to an astonishing degree. As John shows, it makes little difference whether the media are actually biased. As long as partisan elites say they are, many people will believe it so. Why does it matter? This is where John's analysis gets really interesting, but where it would take me too long to do justice to his findings. So let me give you just a tweet teaser. When people distrust the press, they tend to reject its factual claims, relying instead on partisan sources in deciding what's true and what's false. As a result, Republicans and Democrats increasingly hold different views of reality. Their disagreement over the facts has reached the point Or they can barely understand what the other side is saying. Jonathan Ladd, please step forward to receive the Goldsmith Academic Book Award for Why Americans Hate the Media and How It Matters. (laughs) It's a great book.
1: It is now my honor to introduce each of the six finalists for the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting. This year's competition was extremely competitive, and I'm very glad to say that. In these difficult times for journalism, one might fear that the quality and ambition of investigative reporting would be in decline, but that was definitely not the case with this year's entries. In addition to Mike Greenfield, the judges for this year's competition were Steve Jarding, a recognized expert in political campaigns, and lecturer at the Kennedy School. Dan Kennedy, media critic and member of the journalism faculty at Northeastern University. Chuck Lewis, founder of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and Professor of Journalism at American University. And Laura Sullivan, one of NPR's most decorated journalists and a Goldsmith finalist in 2011. No judge is allowed to vote for any entry from his own or own organization or an affiliate of any kind. In January, after long deliberation, the judges select the six finalists and also the winner. We announce the finalists at once because part of the purpose of the Goldsmith Prize is to call attention to the excellent work that all the finalists have done, and the other great investigative work that is being done, which they represent. So it is with great pleasure that I describe the six finalists, each of which in its own way was regarded as extraordinary. They will be presented in alphabetical order by a news organization. Our first finalist is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's series, Cheating Our Children. In 2011, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution exposed widespread cheating in the Atlanta school system. It was a blockbuster story and got a huge amount of attention, but it also left a nagging question. Could Atlanta be alone in manipulating the test scores that largely determine whether schools met the federal standard known as adequate yearly progress? For five months, a team of journal constitution reporters and database specialists engaged in an unprecedented effort to collect standardized test scores from every classroom in the United States. They went after every one. Eventually, the team was able to analyze scores from 69,000 schools in almost 15,000 districts in 49 states. Even after knowing what had happened within the Atlanta schools, what they found astounded them. Test scores in hundreds of cities across the nation followed a pattern of suddenly much higher test scores that in Atlanta indicated cheating in multiple schools. In nine large school districts, the odds that scores in some classrooms could change so dramatically from year to year were less than 1 in 10 billion. The analysis alone did not tell the story, however. Team reporters traveled around the country to Baltimore, to Boston, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Mobile, Washington, and other cities to interview parents and educators and to examine public documents on suspicious test taking. In almost every city, they found a haphazard approach to investigating possible cheating, with allegations often treated as nothing but aberrations and best handled in isolation. Gathering the necessary data and documents turned into a legal and logistical challenge. While a few states had posted online all the data that was needed and many others provided the material requested within a few days or weeks, several states sought to thwart the reporting by withholding information, and not only of test scores, but reports of their own investigations of suspicious tests. Nevada, for example, dismissed the request for information as, quote, an annoyance, When a journal constitution reporter told a Nevada assistant attorney general that his state was virtually the last to provide data, he responded with what you could think of as the Shorenstein response. He said, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) The team repeatedly consulted with academic experts and published a detailed explanation of the methodology behind their analysis. And of course, some attacked the messenger. But the overwhelming reaction overall was that school districts, large and small, saw the series as what it was intended to be, a wake-up call about the dark side of the high-pressure testing required by the No Child Left Behind Act. As one superintendent of a large school district wrote to his colleagues when he sent them the articles, ignore this at your peril. The thing that separates the Goldsmith Awards from others is the express intent that the journalism be aimed at improving how government works, including, of course, public education. And these awards also are closely attentive to the impact of journalism. Did it make a difference? The impact of the Journal Constitution series was that numerous large school districts reevaluated their test scores. Denver's self investigation led to the firing of the principal of one school, this school touted at one time for its skyrocketing test scores. Others are facing criminal charges. Officials in several states are devising testing systems that they hope will deter cheating, and organizations that are developing the common curricula for American schools on which the tests are based are increasingly addressing this test integrity issue. Of course, it is probably fanciful to think that test scores and test score cheating can be eliminated altogether, especially as long as educators are judged by the test scores and the results that they produce. But what is unquestioned is that the Atlanta Journal Constitution's reporting and analysis on a national scale has laid groundwork for a deep and broad national conversation about test integrity. Please join me in saluting the work of Alan Judd, Heather Vogel, John Perry, and M.B. Pell of the Atlanta Journal Constitution for Cheating Our Children. Would you please stand? The next finalist is the work of a consortium of nonprofit journalism organizations, the Center for Public Integrity, Global Integrity, and Public Radio International in cooperation with the Investigative News Network. They call their project the State Integrity Investigation, and it started over coffee. Nathaniel Heller, director of Global Integrity, was telling Bill Buesenberg, the director of the Center for Public Integrity about some new research global integrity had del- in which global integrity had delved into government practices in 22 provinces of Argentina that had led to some real reform there by shining light on breakdowns through a combination of social science metrics and journalistic reporting. Global integrity is international in its focus, but the Center for Public Integrity scrutinizes the United States. Could the same thing be done in all 50 states in this country? The media were filled with stories about corruption in state houses, but no one seemed, it seemed, had bothered to assess the accountability gaps facilitating the endless cycle of pay-to-play scandals and influence peddling in state capitals. Might the groups join forces to apply what they had done in Argentina toward analyzing corruption risks in the United States. Months later, with the addition of Public Radio International to the team, the State Integrity Investigation was born. The first six months were spent hiring reporters, a veteran and respected state house journalist in all 50 states. The team had to establish what exactly they were looking for and what were to be the criteria for measuring something as elusive as integrity. The team interviewed close to 100 state level organizations good government groups, think tanks, and academics, and through that process came up with 330 integrity indicators across 14 categories of state government. Then, in each state, the designated journalists spent some six months reporting. Then, the writing and editing process for the 50 state overview pieces consumed another half year. All told, the team conducted 1,200 interviews reviewed approximately 5,000 documents in scoring a total of 16,500 indicators and producing 125,000 words of copy, copy that had to be readable and insightful and engaging. What it amounted to was an unprecedented data-driven analysis of transparency and accountability in all 50 states, which resulted in a ranking of all 50 states accompanied by both a letter grade and a numerical score Not a single state, not one, earned an A grade from the probe. And eight states got Fs. The reaction was massive. The New York Times weighed in with an editorial and the project was featured in such outlets as the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Huffington Post, NPR. That is another aspect of this nonprofit consortium. All that they gathered was available to every news organization in the country. So news organizations everywhere were able to use the team's reporting to spark their own integrity inquiry into the state government in which they lived. Since the report was published, the state integrity investigation has been quoted, praised, assailed, and otherwise cited by literally hundreds of news outlets. And the investigation prompted or accelerated reform in an ever-growing number of states since the project was released a year ago. For instance, Delaware, Iowa, and Maine have passed laws that improve access to open records and increase disclosure requirements for lobbyists and government officials. Five additional states, California, Michigan, Ohio, South Carolina, and North Dakota have proposed laws that would increase transparency in government and good government groups in many more states have launched their own reform campaigns, bolstered by the work of the State Integrity Investigation. The consortium team is represented tonight by Nathaniel Heller, Executive Director of Global Integrity, Gordon Witkin, Central Managing Editor for the Center for Public Integrity, Adam Hochberg, Editorial Project Director of State Integrity, of the State Integrity Investigation, and Caitlin Ginley, former Center for Public Integrity Editor, and now with Media Matters for America. May I ask them to stand? Our third finalist is the Chicago Tribune, and I think that the best possible way to explain their powerful series, Playing With Fire, is to read from the lead of the first article in the series that began last May. Dr. David Heimbach knows how to tell a story, the article began. Before California lawmakers last year, He noted the noted burn surgeon drew gasps from the crowd as he described, a seven week old baby girl who was burned in a fire started by a candle while she lay on a pillow that lacked flame retardant chemicals. Half of her body was severely burned. She ultimately died after about three weeks of pain and misery in the hospital. Heimbach's passionate testimony about the baby's death made the long-term health concerns about flame retardants voiced by doctors, environmentalists, and even firefighters, sound abstract and petty. But there was a problem with his testimony. It wasn't true. Records show there was no dangerous pillow or candle fire. The baby described didn't exist. Neither did the nine-week-old patient who Heimbach told California legislators died in a candle fire in 2009 nor did the six-week-old patient he told Alaska lawmakers was fatally burned in her crib in 2010. Heinbeck is not just a prominent burn doctor, he is a star witness for the manufacturers of flame retardants. His testimony, the Tribune found, is part of a decades-long campaign of deception that has loaded the furniture and electronics in American homes with pounds of toxic chemicals linked to cancer, neurological deficits, developmental problems, and impaired fertility. And as a sort of coup de grace, later in the article, the Tribune team revealed the ultimate irony. The retardants don't work. The fire just laughs at it, said the researcher, whose work is usually cited by the industry, and he says grossly distorted by them. It sort of takes your breath away. The Playing With Fire series represented more than a year of shoe leather reporting and meticulous digging involving thousands of documents. The reporters had to master complex material frequently buried in seldom read documents. To reveal the surprising role of big tobacco in the buildup of toxic chemicals in American homes, they sifted through 13 million records. Cigarette companies made public after settling lawsuits. Reluctant to alter the cigarettes that were starting fatal house blazes, tobacco companies created a new scapegoat, the furniture catching fire. Internal memos, minutes of meetings and strategic plans showed how big tobacco planted its lobbyists inside the National Association of State Fire Marshals and used that organization to promote flame retardant furniture. The series also exposed how chemical makers twisted science to promote products. The reporters dissected numerous studies and drilled into underlying underlying data. that was often highly technical and arcane, and in many cases, distorted by the chemical industry. Dr. Heimbach, the industry's favorite burn doctor, was sponsored by an organization calling itself Citizens for Fire Safety Institute and claiming to be a coalition of ordinary people dedicated to protecting families. The Tribune combed IRS records, corporate franchise tax reports, and lobbying disclosure forms to prove that the coalition was a front for the three largest manufacturers of flame retardants. When the Tribune confronted Dr. Heimbeck about his testimony, his response was that he had not been under oath. When the first stories ran, worried parents asked if the fire retardant chemicals were in mattresses especially crib mattresses. The industry front organization said they were not, but when the Tribune tested three popular brands of mattresses, it found significant amounts of the same flame retardant that had been removed from children's pajamas over cancer concerns. The impact of the series has been huge. Historic state state and federal government reforms are in the works, and the debate over toxic chemicals has been reshaped Hearings have already taken place in the Senate and in the California State House. The EPA and the Consumer Product Safety Commission have moved to increase safeguards, and on a more direct level, retailers have started to take note as consumers have become more aware. And the potential impact is far-reaching as the word as the as far reach is as far is far-reaching as the word circulates as to what the fire retardant industry has done. One California state senator, after reading aloud from sections of the Tribune series at a legislative hearing, told the industry lobbyist present, this industry has been dishonored, disgraced, and discredited. I would say, in fact, it has been exposed, thanks to the Chicago Tribune. Please join me in expressing admiration to the Chicago Tribune's Patricia Callahan, Sam Rowe, and Michael Hawthorne, reporters for playing with fire. George Papajohn, Assistant <laughs> Manager Editor for Care and Tissue Deputy. Our next finalist is the Los Angeles Times for its series, The Shame of the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts are much in the news today. Their policy regarding gay scouts garners front page attention. And along with that is the disquieting knowledge that all has not been as it should have been in this revered and iconic American institution. And I speak as a former Boy Scout. Two years ago, the Los Angeles Times set out to determine whether the Boy Scouts of America one of the nation's most venerable youth organizations had protected the young people in its charge. The first step for the two reporters was to verify the existence of what was known within the most guarded chambers of the Boy Scout organization. It was known within that organization as the perversion files, a confidential blacklist dating to 1919 of men suspected of molesting boys in their care. Next, the team obtained copies of thousands of the long-hidden files. With months of painstaking work, they redacted the names of victims, created a searchable database of the files, linked each file to the appropriate geographic location in the United States, and posted the database and the associated map on the Times website. Within days of disclosure of this long-suppressed archive, More than 100,000 people had poured over the newspaper's online database and 5,000 abuse files and case summaries. Some had been molested and sought to learn whether their molester had ever been caught or punished or had been allowed to abuse other boys. Some sought to confirm long-held suspicions about a troop leader's behavior. In some cases, those perpetrating the abuse were finally forced to face consequences for their actions. For instance, a Milwaukee pediatrician was forced to surrender his medical license after the state examining board learned from the Times that he had admitted molesting two scouts. What was disclosed above all was how sexual abuse had permeated the Boy Scouts and how the secret had been kept for so very long. The reporters disclosed that for decades, the Boy Scouts had adhered to a policy of allowing suspected molesters to leave the organization quietly assured that the allegations against them would not be made public or reported to police. That was bad enough, but the team also disclosed that the so-called blacklist had proved outrageously ineffective. Its purpose was to enable the scouts to keep out anyone who had been credibly accused of sexual abuse, but the men exiled from scouting often managed to find their way back in. A slipshod registration process clerical errors, computer glitches, and most damning, the eagerness of the Boy Scouts of America to look the other way, exposed an unknowable number of Scouts to sexual predators. The Times pieced together its database from files released, released over years through litigation and court order. The Times found more than 125 cases across the country in which men continued to molest after the Boy Scouts had learned of previous abusive behavior. A scout leader in Minnesota, for example, returned to his old troop after completing a prison term for child abuse. The files also revealed that the scouts had been informed of of abuse directly by boys, parents, and staff members at least 500 times over the years and had failed to contact police in 400 of those cases. Even when the scouts did cooperate with police, the Times discovered that the organization often sought to hide what had happened from parents and the public, primarily to protect the reputation of the Boy Scouts. Not until 2010 did the Boy Scouts require all suspected abuse to be reported to law enforcement. To protect the organization from legal liability, the Scouts had deliberately chosen not to study and learn from its own archive, this perversion file, which was one of the largest databases ever assembled on the sexual abuse of children. The Times did the analysis that the the Scouts could have done years earlier and found simple and clear red flags that could have been used to screen volunteers and keep likely abusers out. The main impact of the Los Angeles Times investigation, aside from giving former Scouts an invaluable body of knowledge, has been the move by the Boy Scouts of America to launch a comprehensive review of the files and to to promise to report to law enforcement any cases that had not previously been disclosed. Please join me in recognizing the excellent work of reporters Jason Felch, Kim Christensen, and editor Julie Marquis of the Los Angeles Times for the Shame of the Boy Scouts. Our last two finalists are the work of the New York Times, but on different investigative missions. The first is Walmart Abroad, a careful and detailed account of how Walmart, the world's largest private employer with more than two million workers, conquered the American, the Mexican market using corruption. And the investigation further revealed that Walmart's topmost executives in Bentonville, Arkansas knew about it, feared exposure, and tried to sweep the truth under the rug, but were thwarted in that effort. The Times faced two huge challenges. First, it had to penetrate the secret precincts at the top of Walmart to discover and recreate what had happened. And there was no hope of cooperation from anyone inside Walmart. And in Mexico, the challenge was to demonstrate that bribes had been paid, even though no one would admit to receiving them. The investigation began, as so many do, with a tip. David Barstow, the Times reporter, learned that a former Walmart de Mexico lawyer had contacted the company executives in Arkansas and told them how for years he and his bosses had used systematic bribery to obtain zoning rulings and construction permits that allowed Walmart to win domination in every corner of Mexico. There were hundreds of suspected of suspect payments in total more than $24 million. Walmart began its own investigation, but within months when the inquiry began to bear fruit, the company's leaders shut it down. No doubt they believed the matter would quietly end there and it would have, but for David Barstow. The Times obtained hundreds of highly confidential Walmart documents and an amazing trove of memos and emails. Barstow interviewed the key players here and in Mexico Before he was through, he knew more about how Walmart dealt with this episode than Walmart did. He was able to piece together the hidden corporate drama with all its machinations and power plays of an internal investigation Walmart's leaders feared could cripple it as it expanded through Latin America and around the world. And he then found the smoking gun. He turned up Walmart memos documenting that its investigators, its own investigators, had in fact found powerful evidence that the whistleblowing lawyer was right. There was, the company's own investigators told their superiors reasonable suspicion to believe that Mexican and US laws had been violated. But Walmart never notified law enforcement officials in either country as they were required to do. The Times also did the shoe leather reporting that Walmart could have done, should have done, but elected not to do. Barstow traveled through Mexico with a Mexican reporter, Alejandra Zanik von Bertrop, tunneling into databases and filling in filing cabinets of local bureau- bureaucracies that govern construction permits and zoning per- issues. They discovered how in city after city, Walmart had paid bribes to win approvals that the law did not allow. Perhaps the most blatant exposure of corruption was when Walmart bribed its way around regulation after regulation to build a supermarket in the shadow of the ancient pyramids, one of the most venerated places in Mexico. There it was, the bribe for a crucial last minute change in a zoning map, the payment for a traffic permit, the payment for the blessing of the Institute of Archaeology and History, the organization that is the official guardian of Mexico's cultural treasures. And finally, the bribes to the mayor for the all-important construction permit. The store opened on schedule in time for Christmas shopping. As a direct result of the series, the Justice Department and the Securities Exchange Commission are investigating Walmart for violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. The revelations brought an abrupt halt to a growing movement to ease up on the act's anti-bribery enforcement. Mexican authorities are also investigating Walmart, Mexico's largest private employer, for violation of anti-corruption laws. When Walmart got wind of what the Times was doing, the company hurriedly reopened its own investigation. And in November, Walmart disclosed that it was examining possible violations of the anti-bribery law in China, India, and Brazil three of its primary markets overseas. A number of key Walmart players have left the company and more may follow. The company has also radically overhauled its compliance and investigative protocols. The Times work, in other words, has had impact. Please join me in recognizing reporter David Barstow and editor Larry Ingracia of the New York Times for Walmart Abroad. I've just looked at my former colleagues at the New York Times, and I think we got the editors mixed up. Did we? Paul, please, stand. <laughs> Our sixth finalist, also the New York Times, was an investigation of a very different sort. It is called the I-Economy. The series began with a simple question, why doesn't America make cell phones? Any cell phones? The most ubiquitous consumer product of our time. And what does that omission say about how technology companies, and especially Apple, conduct business? To answer those questions, the Times had to overcome a huge obstacle. It had to penetrate a company so obsessively secret that it refused to give Times reporters any interviews or access to any of the company's operations. That that secrecy is strictly enforced. Apple employees know that speaking to a reporter without permission is grounds for termination. Nevertheless, the Times reporters managed to unearth more than six dozen Apple insiders willing to speak. To find them, the Times built a database of hundreds of current and former Apple executives and contacted each of them. Through many, though many immediately hung up, enough were persuaded to talk that a detailed portrait of how Apple operates could be drawn. The Times assigned a dozen reporters in Six Nations, led by Charles Duhigg in the United States and Keith Bradshaw and David Barbosa in China. Assisted in multimedia, by multimedia reporters and producers and more than a dozen translators, the team visited the Chinese laborers who make cell phones near the factories where they worked and at their homes. Times reporters collected tax documents from four continents and tracked down former executives who helped create convoluted tax avoidance plans like one dubbed double Irish with a Dutch sandwich. I cannot possibly tell you what that is. They cultivated sources at the White House and its Singaporean ministries, a Caribbean bureaucracy isn't it? and its schools and municipal agencies in Apple's hometown. And what they revealed with all this digging was the harsh and at times deadly conditions under which Chinese workers assembling iPhones and iPads live and work. They disclosed the low pay and high turnover at Apple's fabled retail stores. And they showed the dubious links to which Apple, America's most profitable company, went to reduce its tax bill, and the short-sightedness of its conclusion that Apple products couldn't be manufactured in America. Apple Inc., with its enormous profits, messianic founder and wildly popular products, many no doubt in pockets and purses in this room tonight, had become a company with an image so above reproach as to not be accountable. It took the persistence of a dozen New York Times business reporters to lift the veil on America's wonder company and discovered the troubling underside of the elegantly designed device we hold in our hands. As a result of this, more than a million workers at the Chinese factories that make Apple iPhones and iPads got a 25% raise. Their working conditions vastly improved after Apple's supplier plants were open to outside inspections for the first time. Apple tripled its corporate social responsibility staff and reached out to advocacy groups that it had once rebuffed. It publicly identified its suppliers for the first time. Some 30,000 employees at Apple got raises of up to 20% and Apple announced it would invest $100 million to manufacture some computers in the United States. Other computer companies such as Hewlett Packard and Intel began to rethink how they deal with overseas suppliers. And Congress opened an investigation into the dubious tactics that Apple and other technology companies use to reduce their tax bills. The series drew praise from some unlikely sources. Ari Fleischer, President George W. Bush's press spokesman, who says, frankly, that he doesn't like the New York Times, said publicly, this article about why Apple doesn't hire Americans for manufacturing is a must-read. And in a case of almost stupendously unlikely agreement both John Stewart and Rush Limbaugh had good things to say <laughs> please join me in recognizing the outstanding work of reporters Charles Duhug, Keith Bratcher, David Barbosa and editor Larry Engrassia <laughs> It's now time to announce the winner of this year's Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting. The prize comes with a $25,000 cash award for the winner and $10,000 awards for the finalists, thanks to the generosity of the Greenfield Foundation. One of the things that seems evident in this year's group of finalists is the increasing importance of database reporting, which many of the investigations relied upon, and the importance of creation of databases that can be used by the public to explore the investigation's findings. That will surely only increase. What is also the lesson of these awards to me is how important this kind of reporting is and how much by inference we don't know. The Goldsmith Awards are intended to inspire and encourage others to do the same, and this year's finalists are certainly inspiring. May I ask all the finalists to stand for one more salute for the outstanding work <laughs> And now the winner This year's Goldsmith Prize for investigative reporting goes to Patricia Callahan, Sam Rowe, and Michael Hawthorne of the Chicago Tribune for Playing With Fire. When I speak to people about the Kennedy School who aren't familiar with it, when I try to explain it to people, I often say that the thing that makes it such an inspiring, interesting, fascinating, good place is that the people who come here want to change the world. Changing the world, of course, is a tall order. I would say that the journalist in our time who has done more of that than any other, who's done more to change the world than any other, is Nicholas Kristof. How to, make the difference, how to make a difference in the world, in fact, he has told me just before we came out here, is the topic of his new book, How Very Appropriate. Bill Clinton credits him with having done more to really communicate how poor people live throughout the world than anyone in journalism. His work on child mortality in the developing world is credited by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as being instrumental in helping direct that remarkable couple toward global health, as their philanthropic focus. Half the Sky, a book co-written with his wife, Cheryl Wu Dunn, has been compared to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring as a path-breaking call to arms on the subjects of sex trafficking, forced prostitution, contemporary slavery, gender-based violence, rape as a weapon of war, and the multitude of ways women are oppressed and violated in the world. By the way, yesterday, Nick and Cheryl launched the Half the Sky Game, which, if you play it on Facebook, raises money to help victims like the ones they wrote about. Nick was early to seize upon the web's potential. He blogs, he tweets, and so forth. Now he games. Mm. Archbishop Desmond Tutu has bestowed on him the title Honorary African for shining the spotlight on neglected issues in Africa. Jeffrey Tubin of CNN and The New Yorker was a Harvard classmate of Nick's, As he put it, I'm not surprised to see him emerge as the moral conscience of our generation of journalists. I am surprised to see him as the Indiana Jones of our generation of journalists. (laughs) He has reported from more than 150 countries, including most of the worst places in the world as measured by their level of danger and distress. He has inspired not only his colleagues, but a new generation of journalists with his Win a Trip with Nick Competitions in which college students who are journalists vie to join him on reporting missions. Since starting the competition in 2007, he has taken his young partners to Rwanda, Eastern Congo, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Niger, and many other places, and my guess is that Mali may be next. Even the producer of the 2013 Oscar for Best Picture of the Year took notice. Ben Affleck said Nick was a cross between Mother Teresa, and the James Wood character in the movie, Salvador. I was going to explain that to you, but Nancy said no, not by, too <laughs> So who is this guy? His father was a Polish American immigrant who came to this country after World War II and married a girl named McWilliams. His parents were longtime professors at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon, and he grew up on a sheep and cherry farm that the family also owned. He arrived at Harvard in 1978, having never seen it, a self-described country hick, but one already passionate about journalism from high school. He put in many hours at the Crimson, was Phi Beta Kappa, graduated in three years, won a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, and then took a first in law at Maudlin College. He went to work for the New York Times in 1984, where his work has earned him two Pulitzer Prizes, One with his wife for international reporting and one for commentary. He is probably not surprisingly, not only on, not only David's boss, but after a fashion, Drew's as well. He's on the board of overseers of Harvard. What has made his career so very extraordinary is that the things he has chosen to explore have almost always been the ones that have great human suffering at their core. Nick Krestoff is a moral journalist. He sometimes shames us. He always inspires us. I am proud to introduce the 2013 winner of the Goldsmith Career Award, Nicholas Kristof.
3: Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm truly honored to be uh, here with so many incredible, the the finalists for the Investigative Prize really uh, blew me away. It's a privilege to count myself a journalist alongside. You really do just truly incredible work. and I should also say that it's also always a pleasure to come to the Kennedy School. I know so many people here, so many great friends, although I must say every four years I always have to make new ones because you kind of flush out a group as they go to Washington uh, to, to run the country. Um, but um, this pl- I, I also have to confess that, frankly, this place also is one of my more traumatic memories along with being you know, arrested by warlords in various countries. Because five years ago I came and I was giving the commencement address here. I brought my then 10-year-old daughter because I thought that she should see her dad You know, in this. Um, I thought it might improve her, her, her view of her dad, frankly. And um, so we're walking uh, down the street toward the Kennedy School and we see these hordes of people not coming to the Kennedy School but crossing the street heading to Harvard Yard. And I was kind of mystified why everybody should be heading away from where I'm about to give a speech. And uh, we stopped somebody and asked, why is everybody going over there? And as a young woman. She said very excitedly, oh, didn't you hear? Bill Clinton is speaking in Harvard Yard in a few minutes. <laughs> and, well, I was kind of concerned about that as we walked a little closer. And finally, I stopped and, and uh, said, Caroline, I just want to tell you something that... Um, You know, I'm going to be speaking here at the Kennedy School, but Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, is going to be speaking right across the way over there, and so, you know, you may be the only person in the audience. And she looked at me very sympathetically and then said, "Uh, Dad, uh, can I go hear Bill Clinton? (laughs) So, (laughs) I'm still not recovered from that. Um, But... um, I'm also, frankly, um, um, a little intimidated because I sort of assume that the notion here is that I provide some authoritative wisdom, you know, the summation of this career. And one of the things you learn in journalism is to be exceptionally suspicious of anybody's received wisdom. It's one of the basic things you you learn early in your career. And I think one of the ways that I learned. Uh, That was when Cheryl and I were posted in Beijing for the New York Times, and at that point we had to live in an official New York Times residence in the gentlemen Y area in Beijing. And we knew that the apartments were bugged. Um, We actually had a friend who uh, worked part-time for state security transcribing our conversations. Um, (laughs) But um, we weren't entirely sure where the bugs were, and then uh, somebody uh, pointed to a little um, grate just as you went into our apartment and said uh, that the bugs were inside there, or some of the bugs were inside there. Well, I thought, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I got a stepladder, I tried to peer through the grate, and you couldn't, it was kind of a um, shoebox-shaped little recess in there. Didn't seem to serve any obvious purpose. I tried to shine a light through the grate. There was some electrical gadgetry in there. I just took a hammer and pounded down uh, the grate. And I just spent a year studying Chinese. I was so proud because I recognized the Chinese characters on these gadgets. Uh, in translation, they, they read electronic sound carrying device. <laughs> We'd found it. You know, We got to the bottom of this. So Cheryl and I... Um, we, went to the, we retreated to the bathroom and turned on the shower and the faucets and whispered into each other's ears. We well prepared for this by reading Robert Ludlum novels. <laughs> so we were trying to figure out how we should deal with this challenge. Um, we essentially thought we had three options. One was that we um, are well behaved, we leave the bugs in place. Uh, second option, we smash them. Third option, we leave them in place but use them as our private disinformation channel to state security. Um, and actually, let me, let me poll this incredibly wise audience. Um, what would you have done? Um, leave them in place, smash them, or leave them in place but use them for disinformation? How many of you would have been the, you know, the well-behaved option and just left them in place? Oh boy, okay. Um, how many of you would have smashed them? I'm just going to take down a couple of names for the Chinese government. They pay well for that. Um, How many of you would have left them in place but used them for disinformation? Okay. You know, great minds think alike. That was was exactly what Cheryl and I had agreed to do. And just at that moment, a friend arrived at the front door, and we found out what an electronic sound-carrying device is in Chinese. It's the doorbell buzzer. And... Boy, you know, we felt deflated. But I, I always remember that experience any time I'm on a reporting trip and I kind of feel, wow, I've got it, I've nailed it. Um, because as you learn that whenever you kind of think you've really kind of got it down, then that's the moment to really be, be wary of, um, of that wisdom that you think you've just inhaled. Um, and given um, the uh, insights that I just demonstrated, uh, electronic sound carrying devices, I likewise advise you to be somewhat suspicious of my own um, reflections. I wanted to offer some kind of ad hoc thoughts about um, three challenges that we face in journalism to try to inspire some, some conversation afterward. And the first challenge is a pretty basic one that is in the part of the conversation already. It's that our business model, frankly, seems to be evaporating for an awful lot of news organizations. We're kind of groping for a new business model. And one of the things that frankly troubles me is that if you think about past technologies and paradigms in industry, that typically it has not been the previous one that has mastered the new technology. It wasn't um, horse and buggies that mastered uh, the automotive industry. It wasn't trains that turned into train company, railroads that turned into, into airlines. Uh, it wasn't computer companies that became internet companies, and internet companies do not become social media companies. I think that there tends to be, in any uh, successful industry, a tendency to feel that you are doing really serious, important work that tends to make you a little more careful about taking risks. You're protecting your brand. You're protecting your flank. And that makes you a little more cautious about experimenting and uh, rushing into new areas. And I think that, at the end of the day, can end up hurting one. I think we probably do need to be uh, more experimental, more willing to take risks uh, if we want to dominate the new landscape ahead. And I think it's an open question about what kinds of news organizations will. Um, I think it's so important that the kind who have demonstrated this incredible work are still very, very present, which means we have to figure out how to make money. And I think we have to do a better job collectively in uh, moving into new platforms as we go along, be more willing to take risks. A second challenge that worries me because so many of my interests are uh, international, is that frankly, I think the US is trying to retreat a little bit from the rest of the world. The US has historically been fairly inward looking, fairly insular. And then after 9-11, we became somewhat unusually very global. You know, we were attacked by foreign powers and that made us look globally. Now, I think a combination of the economic downturn and just a weariness with Iraq, with Afghanistan, uh, is leading us to look more inward. And you see that in all kinds of ways. Um, In connection with the sequester, uh, the, the Pew surveys just ask people, Okay, given the sequester, what area specifically in government would you like to see cut? And they asked about 19 areas. Um, Maybe not surprisingly, even people who wanted to see cuts, uh, when you asked specifically, in 18 18 of those 19 areas, they wanted to either see the sums held constant or increased. The only one where a majority did not want it held constant or increased was foreign aid, foreign assistance. And you know, likewise, I've you know I've gotta say that when I write about uh, international issues, faraway issues, then my audience plunges. Uh, I can pretty much write a Republican suck column by hitting the F5 key on my keyboard. And then when I do that, you get lots of plaudits. People say, Oh great column, amazing, wonderful and you've written in half an hour and, you know, on deadline because you didn't have something else to do. Meanwhile, you go off and, you know, sneak into Syria or um, into the Nuba Mountains of Sudan and uh, at great expense and a certain amount of risk and the columns, unfortunately, often just end up uh, kind of disappearing without a ripple. And uh, it's, that's in general, I think, one reason why these issues tend to be covered so little. Uh, Anderson Cooper uh, went off to cover the, the first big Congo elections. Huge expense, risk, uh, live broadcasting in the, in, the, in the early morning hours for Congo, and his ratings went down. Um, one of the things that has left me kind of dispirited was that uh, the Gates Foundation worked out an agreement with ABC News, whereby the Gates Foundation would give $1.5 million to ABC News, essentially um, I mean, almost as a bribe to cover important global issues, global health, global nutrition, um, and it was cover their expenses. And in some ways it worked really well. There's Some great reporting came out about that, really important reporting. Uh, they won prizes. Then after a year, ABC News decided not to renew it because even though they were being paid to cover global health, global nutrition, they thought that viewers were essentially uninterested. And that's a huge challenge, I think, for our industry. Um, And at one level, it's very understandable. If any of us was executive producer of a show, um, you would know that you know, you can send a crew a long way away at great expense um, and uh, then your ratings will go down or you can put a Democrat and a Republican in the studio together and have them yell at each other and your ratings will go up. And that is, I'm afraid, going to be our landscape ahead. And I think we've got to think really creatively about how we address that, how we can make stories more interesting, how we can use other hooks to try to present international news. I think it'll also mean that a certain amount of international reporting is going to come not from traditional news organization, but from think tanks, from universities from non-governmental organizations, will be foundation funded. Um, I think the the news landscape is going to be much more democratic in that respect. And here at a university, one thing I particularly encourage faculty or future faculty uh, to think about is getting more engaged in those kinds of public debates. One of the things that has frustrated me is there is so much knowledge about public policy issues on university campuses around the country and yet often uh, that wisdom isn't reflected in the public policy debate and instead think tanks have a much, much greater profile and I think part of that is that we in the news media need to do a better job of getting really smart experts to weigh in. But I also think that part of that is that academia uh, has, uh, in particularly in academic writing, has tended to marginalize itself by sometimes writing in ways that just are not going to sway the public. And I wish that academia would embrace social media uh, more, because that is a way of reaching a broad platform, and it's really so important to get that kind of, uh, that kind of energy and thoughtfulness to, to participate in national debates on all these issues, including the, the foreign policy one. Um, I should also say that, you know, my, this is sort of partly relates to my own evolution as a journalist. Um, when I first became a columnist in 2001, I thought initially, oh boy, you know, I'm going to be changing people's minds over issues uh, twice a week. And you know, it really doesn't work out that way. What I found at least is that when I write about an issue that is already on the agenda, then people who start out agreeing with me think, oh boy, that was good. And people who start out disagreeing with me think, boy, Christoph completely missed the boat today. Uh, and I truly believe that, in a sense, where our power is, is not so much changing people's minds and issues that are on the agenda, but rather we're in the lighting business. We shine a spotlight on something, and that helps project it on the agenda. And so, I mean, the, the, the winning team from the Chicago Tribune, uh, with their uh, work on the flame retardants, that... That was that's a perfect example. It projected this issue on the national agenda, and is and is and is bringing about far-reaching change. And I th- I think that I hope that we in journalism will continue to recognize that that is our great power. It's in it's in laying out an agenda. It's in shining a spotlight um, uh, rather than in necessarily just classic classic punditry. Um, I um, I was really frustrated when. Uh, I was reporting from Darfur initially, uh, and it, again, it just seemed that I'd go off there and you know visit these villages there where there'd been massacres, and the columns would kind of disappear without a trace. And at that time, I don't know if you remember, uh, this is say 2004, and um, at least any of you who are living in New York then may remember that there were a couple of red-tailed hawks in Central Park. One was pale male, do you remember this? And their their apartment building, uh, they were nesting in an apartment building there, uh, and the building kicked out uh, the two hawks, and New Yorkers were all up in arms, were outraged about two homeless red-tailed hawks, and I couldn't figure out. I thought, you know, how is it that I can't muster the same level of indignation about hundreds of thousands of people being attacked and driven out of their homes and enduring mass rape and this kind of thing. And that led me to um, the work of some people in social psychology, uh, Paul Slovic in particular, about what makes us connect. Uh, and it's about individual stories. It's about saying that we can it's feeling there's an arc of change. And um, that Likewise is, in a sense, why with Half the Sky. We, we did all kinds of experiments. We, um, uh, we, in the television documentary, we brought in actresses. Um, and we were worried about some of this. Is this going to cheapen issues that we really care about? Um, is one of our actresses going to get you know arrested for shoplifting? Um, <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, it worked so well because it brought in people who, to pay attention to these issues who otherwise might not have. Uh, and the half-the-sky game on Facebook is a new iteration, and it's an experiment. We, again, we worry a little bit that it's going to cheapen attention on issues that are truly life-and-death issues, and yet I think it's imperative that we figure out really aggressively how to get more people to pay attention to issues that are so important, um, and um, we'll let you know how that experiment unfolds. The other um, challenge, a third challenge that I think we're going to face uh, actually has to do with, with Jonathan Ladd's book uh, that won. Uh, it has to do with this rising distrust for the, for the news media, which I think is going to lead to more scrutiny. Um, and I find all this really dispiriting. Um, Alex mentioned some of the, the statistics um, that uh, at this point, I mean, I think so many of us entered journalism partly after the Woodward and Bernstein era, and we thought that this is a a field where you can really have a positive influence on society. It's a way to make a difference. And uh, these days, uh, as many people in the public think that the press plays a harmful role in democracy as it plays a positive role. Uh, Two-thirds of people say that news organizations regularly get their facts wrong. Um, it's twice as many as in 1985, um, and as you know, there's much more polarization in the, in, in the news media. So we have Fox News on the left, you have MSNBC on the, uh, Fox News on the right, uh, MSNBC on the, uh, on the left, uh, and I think that also creates a certain risk for the public. Uh, for all of us, that we self-select our news sources. Nick Negroponte at MIT years ago talked about the danger of people through the internet getting their news sources through what he called the daily me, and I think that is kind of the direction that we're going. We're we're all able increasingly to uh, find out information sources that will confirm our biases instead of make us question them, and um, um, given human bias for trying to do that I think that is a a troubling issue for for democracy as a whole and just more broadly I have just got to say that um, for all this distrust and indeed you know I think maybe especially those of us in journalism see all kinds of mistakes we've made flaws missed opportunities uh, things gone terribly wrong but at its best this can still play such an important role in any society and Maybe because I'm often traveling in societies that don't have a free press, uh, it strikes me in particular. Um, and I have such admiration for those journalists in other countries that don't have a free press uh, and the risks they take. In Ethiopia, um, a, uh, a, a, a journalist, uh, Eskinder Nega, uh, is serving an 18 year prison term uh, for having the courage to report. Uh, honestly about his country, and when I go and interview these countries, um, I, on the one hand, thank my lucky stars that I'm a reporter here, but I'm just so full of admiration for all they do. I think that the U.S. sometimes tries to build democracy in other countries by holding elections, by paying for elections. I think we sometimes exaggerate the impact of the role of, of, of elections in a democracy, and maybe discount the importance of other elements, including a free press. And for an awful lot less than the cost of an election, one can support uh, a journalist uh, who, uh, in ways that will more than pay for itself in terms of reduced corruption in that country. Um, I wish that the US would be more outspoken when some of these journalists in other countries are arrested and detained, particularly by our allies. We really do have uh, some real voice. Um, one of, my, um, one of the, the places where I kind of saw this was uh, uh, in uh, Pakistan. I once uh, sneaked into a uh, village where the uh, feudal lord of the area had, um, was really destroying the local people. He killed several people. Uh, he bought off the police. Uh, and I sneaked in very nervously. I was interviewing people about it. And uh, then it was getting dark back in my car, was trying to make a quiet exit, and uh, to my great consternation, all the people around, all the villagers, began to cheer. Uh, and I was trying to catch them up, and I asked my interpreter, and they were speaking Seraiki. I said, well, what, what are they saying? And uh, uh, she said, oh, they're saying long-lived journalists. And, uh, you know, <laughs> on the one hand, boy, I wish we could hear that a little more in this country. <laughs> on the other hand... Um, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, in in places I think like that, uh, where um, uh, where journalism sometimes doesn't uh, reach the field, then you really do see see what is missed and what the power there. Um, the um, I think that to deal with this distrust, we're going to have to um, we're going to have to watch your backs much more broadly. But I think that sometimes there's a tendency to think of of ethics in terms of codes, when more broadly they're essentially, I think, a way of seeing life, a way of approaching life. I think the best ethical rule is what would this look like on a billboard? And I think it's very hard to come up with a specific code of conduct that is going to cover ethical lapses. I think we need to kind of broaden our sense of how that works and, you know, one of the, the, greatest challenges that I faced in terms of an ethical um, conundrum and I'll I'll leave you with us was again when we were, when Cheryl and I were in China and uh, we had covered uh, Tiananmen. Uh, One of the young people who had helped us cover it was a student at uh, Tsinghua University named uh, Liu Xiang and because he had helped us cover the crackdown there, uh, he ended up in prison. Uh, He escaped from prison. And then he uh, returned to Beijing, secretly connected with us, and asked for our help in fleeing the country. Um, in general, one of the basic rules in the New York Times playbook is that you don't help escape felons flee a country, um, and we couldn't even consult with our editors because, I mean, a they would, I mean, they would obviously have to say uh, to you know you're not you can't help them, but b our lines were uh, were, were were tapped. And um, Cheryl and I just didn't know what to do. I mean, we—if we helped him, we were at risk of being kicked out. Uh, the bureau could be closed. On the other hand, if we didn't help him, here's a 19-year-old kid who had already helped New York Times readers, had gone to jail for it. We figured if, he, if we didn't help him, he would get up, he would end up being imprisoned again for who knows how long. And um, I think one of the things I've done in my career that was most unprofessional was that we did help him. And he did get out. And he's actually now in the US. Uh, Totally unprofessional, but something that in retrospect, I think Cheryl and I are really proud of. Um, And uh, so with that, uh, to help stimulate conversation, thank you very much for uh, having me here. And I'd love to take some questions.
1: Nick, uh, Nick has agreed to take some questions. There are microphones here, here, and up there, and so forth. I would remind you of the rules. Identify yourself, uh, make the question short, and make sure it has a question mark at the end.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. Uh,
0: my name is Sita Gophar, and I'm a sophomore at the college, and it's been an honor to hear you speak. I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about this whole idea of, of, of reporting in times of risk, in times of danger, or um, when you know there may be potential repercussions. Have you
1: ever felt personally um, any fear of those repercussions, for example, when you were reporting in Beijing or other places? And um, can you recall any instances where it has forced you to compromise your work or to uh, report any differently than you would have otherwise have done?
3: Um, Thanks for the question. I I mean, the truth is that I spend much of my time abroad uh, in total fear. <laughs> uh, and it constantly forces you to change your reporting because there are all kinds of places you can't go. Um, and um, the, it's not only your own safety you have to be concerned about, but the truth is that typically you're traveling with an interpreter and a driver, and their lives are so much at greater risk than your own. I remember when, in Darfur once uh, we were um, in a village that... Uh, the Janjaweed militia was about to massacre. They were approaching it. Everybody able-bodied was fleeing, and we were interviewing those people who were left behind, who were not able to leave. Uh, and my interpreter uh, finally said at one point, look, they're, they're going to be here very shortly. If they catch you, you have commercial value. They can ransom you. Me, they're just going to shoot me right away. And he was right, and we left. Um, but, all ki- I mean, there are all kinds of really important stories that get hugely undercovered because it's hard to go and, and cover them and you will put people at risk. And it, I mean, one of the lessons I think for dictators is that if you want to um, clamp down on coverage of atrocities that you commit, um, then unfortunately, you can do that by creating real danger for journalists and for those who assist them. Hi,
2: (laughs) sorry. Uh, My name is Melissa, I'm a second year here at the Kennedy School. Uh, First, I wanted to thank you for everything that you've done to raise awareness for gender inequalities and women's empowerment. However, my question is a bit more about some of the criticisms that your work brings. Uh, And more specifically, some of your most vocal critics say that the way that you frame your articles tends to remove agency from the same women that you're seeking to empower by painting them as victims, and also sort of perpetuating this uh, West should, you know, these women need to be helped by the West or saved by the West. And I was wondering if you had any sort of empathy for these criticisms, and if so, how you might adjust your work accordingly going forward, and if not, what your response is to them.
3: Thank you. Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think there's a real frustration sometimes with people who deeply care about Uh, a country that uh, I will go there and, um, you know, sometimes I will write about uh, that country using some kind of American who happens to be in the area. Um, And uh, so, um, uh, for example, in the case of uh, Eastern Congo, uh, I've written about it many times, the most lethal conflict since World War II, as you may know, um, rape capital of the world. One of the stories that I did about it was uh, through the kind of the lens, or through the uh, about the work of Lisa Shannon, who's a student here, uh, there, and I. In many ways, this is profoundly unfair. Um, There are so many Congolese doing extraordinary work, Um, but the reality is, I want to be read, and if you only have, uh, I mean, already my readership for that column is dipping. I don't know, 50%. If you only have Congolese characters, unless you can, uh, sometimes you can find some truly amazing person, or it'll be a Congolese who will have that, who will serve as that bridge. Uh, but otherwise, um, if you don't have some kind of a, an American connection, uh, then far more people are gonna read it, are gonna write their member of Congress, are gonna get engaged. And essentially that's, that's why I so often uh, have those characters. It's to, Sense that that is the power to make a difference. Same reason to bring celebrities along on those videos. Um, And um, I I have plenty of sympathy for those critics. I I think it's perfectly valid. Um, But I also think that if you want to have impact, then you have to be creative about trying to figure out ways of telling that story.
0: Hi, my name is Aliza. I'm a sophomore at the college. And as a member of the forum committee, I'd like to ask a question submitted to us through Twitter. How, if at all, do we encourage news consumers to diversify their media choices beyond polarized sources to limit media bias?
3: Boy, I mean, it's a great question, and I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, and I think it's just deeply embedded in us. That's kind of how we, I think we all, um, we all want to reach for news sources that we think are reasonable which means those that completely reflect our own biases um, and i think it's uh i think it's really i mean it, it worked pretty well in the old days when you ha- in the US the, tradi- the the essentially the journalistic tradition was um that Uh, AP and the wire services needed to market themselves to both Republican and Democratic newspapers in the 19th century. So kind of the new standard became being fairly neutral for business reasons. Uh, These days, uh, business reasons are such that there is a real market for um, a political point of view. And I think that once that is available, then it is really hard to encourage people to turn to others accept um, by just encouraging them that in the same way you, you know, want to take a run or uh, eat broccoli or Brussels sprouts, you should, um, I mean, that's, uh, that's how I view the, the Wall Street Journal editorial page as, you know, a kind of a hard workout or a, a brussel sprouts, um, that it's good for me. Um, and I, I, you know, commend uh, it to you in that, in that regard.
0: Hi, my name is Alex Remington. I'm a second-year master's in public policy student here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, Public service or accountability journalism is often described as a public good. uh, But it's a sort of a unique public good that's largely provided by for-profit corporations. As uh, Jonathan Ladd's book uh, documents, this notion of trusted media is something of historical anomaly. Uh, Obviously, other public goods tend to be provided by regulated and often publicly supported utilities and agencies. Do you view the work that you do uh, for a for-profit company as being in danger? Do you think that reporters like you will continue to have a place in the for-profit market?
3: I guess first I would say that in describing news organizations today, I'd be cautious about using the word for-profit company. (laughs) um we actually have a lot in common these days with nonprofits um but a i do think that um i do think that a great deal of what journalism provides is indeed a, a classic public good i think that there are going to be i mean i think there are going to be all kinds of creative ways that we figure out how to pay for uh, this kind of journalism, and for other a solutions journalism, which also I think is really important, but that doesn 't have a, 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 a huge market um, and I think that um, you know foundation support, for example, may be an element uh, of that. Uh, you know you have ProPublica, you have other examples that are doing really interesting uh, work along those lines, but we um, but I think that there, i don 't see an inconsistency with a um, for profit company or an aspiring for profit company, uh, you know, providing an a important public uh, good in that respect. If they can pay for it. If they can figure out how to pay for it.
1: We'll take two more.
3: Yes. Hi, my name is Ben Bulger. Um, I, I think by the wonderful
2: examples tonight, we see that the print media still is a really key driver of deep investigative journalism. And you, were, you began your comments today by talking about newer forms of social media. Do you have hopes that these newer forms can actually support sustained, sustained, deep investigative journalism, or do you think there's something really special about the traditional
3: print form that really can't be replicated in newer forms? I think that's a really important question, one we don't really know the answer to. But and um, I mean, the Huffington Post, for example, has done very good work on veterans. I think there are some kinds of reporting that really do have an audience and um and that uh, can be either lost leaders or can have a, a you know broad support there are other kinds of reporting that i think traditionally news organizations did because they regarded it as important they regarded it as kind of a duty and um it it didn't have an audience and probably never will. I think reporting on a lot of um, state capitals, for example, on city council meetings, uh, providing real accountability on local and state government is something that is incredibly important to make democracy work. And I think that it's hard to see how you would get um, people passionately interested in that. And reporting on far away problems, I mean, these, you know, the. the ABC News. This thing I said about global health and global nutrition. I think that it there's so much going on in that world. It is so important, and yet uh, I I think it's really hard to figure out how to cover that in a way that is going to build an audience. And news organizations now care so much about uh, their audiences as they're fighting to fighting for their lives. So I think some of these things are really really going to be tough.
1: Last question.
2: Hi, my name is Si Wang. I'm a first year at the Kennedy School. So as someone who's followed
1: your column, blog, and Facebook page for years now, um, I would love to hear, um, given that unfortunately there is no shortage of um, social injustices and um, great challenges, what tugs at your moral conscience in choosing what to report on? And how do you decide the topics that seem to be a flashpoint for
2: you that you write something on versus other things like Darfur, where I know you covered quite extensively?
3: Um, You know, I wish that I could offer you kind of a clearer formula, but really the truth is that very often it's not so much a rational choice, but just something that really just gets me based on an initial uh, reporting trip. The first time I went to Darfur, I never would have imagined that I'd end up going there, I think, 11 or 12 times in all. Uh, but, you know, that first trip, um, seeing uh, these, seeing these villages where people had been massacred, um, where there had been mass rape, these orphans, little orphans, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to put that out of your mind. Uh, sex trafficking is another. I happen to do one story, Uh, back in 1997 and I just could not I went into Cambodian brothel and here are these two girls 14 and 15 uh, they were locked up in there if they tried to escape the police would have handed them right back there and it felt exactly like 19th century slavery except these two girls are dead of AIDS in their 20s and I'm sure they are now dead those two girls but that makes me kind of want to go back in uh, I must say that I do look for stories that have kind of broader resonance, but that aren 't illuminated because you know if, if what I have is a spotlight, then there 's no point in shining it on something that is fully lit up. It works much the best if it 's on something that people are not paying adequate attention to. I, re- I did some reporting about AIDS in southern Africa, for example, and that essentially had I think no impact because people already knew that it was a big issue. They had to be at work in thirty minutes, and once they figured out that my column was about aids in southern africa they probably knew that my what my point of view was going to be and uh you know it, they, they moved on um, other issues um, likewise I, I mean it's hard to think of a more important issue in nutrition than micronutrients things like zinc and iodine and, and getting them uh, to young people. On the other hand, that's one of the more boring things to write about. And um, so it's, uh, you know, there's a trade-off. One, I, I did one uh, column about uh, iodine um, uh, supplementation, and it was kind of teased that, you know, this is the most boring topic ever. Uh, but you can only do that once every five years or so. Uh, and um, so it's, it's just kind of, a, um, just kind of a, a sense of what I think, you know, I can, what is important, not illuminated, and what I can get away with boring my readers with on that week. Thanks very Thank much. You,
0: Thank
1: Before we adjourn, I want to pay a special thanks to Alison Comer, who is the person who does the lion's share of the organizing for, this, for the Shorenstein Center, and, and the entire Shorenstein Center staff. This is really something that we do as a, as a staff together as a team, and uh, they are a superb team. They really are. Thank you very much. Uh, tomorrow uh, at 9 o'clock in Allison Dining Room at the top of the Taubman Building, we will have a, an hour and a half. Uh, colloquium uh, about investigative reporting with representatives of all six of the finalists who will talk about what they did and how they did it, the problems they ran into and so forth. It's actually a very fascinating uh, thing if you are interested in investigative reporting at all. Let me say again my congratulations to all the finalists and to the Chicago Tribune for its, its uh, win. Again, Nick, thank you so much and thank you all for being here. We are adjourned. That was excellent.